Now to the uh, scripture, let me ask you to please pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, again we pray as we do, as we worship in various ways, different types of prayers to, to call upon your name as we begin, to recognize that you're the one who calls us and we're in your presence and, and we're grateful for that and then to confess our sins as a prayer, to give you thanks for your transforming work of the gospel as we dedicate our offering. And uh, now as we come and pray this prayer of illumination, meaning that we desire, Holy Spirit, that you would enable us to see, bring light upon this word, that's your word, in such a way that we would hear it and believe it and receive it and give thanks for it and live it. So please be with us, I pray now. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn please to Ephesians in chapter 5. I want to read verses 3 through 14. Ephesians in chapter 5, please. And this is the word of the Lord. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. That there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ, of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God is the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And then together we say, The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, you know, as we're working our way through this letter, that we're in a part of it, in the, in the part of it where Paul is laying out how we are to live. Now, remember, and I never tired of thinking this or saying this, because it's an important and necessary correction for us. We don't become Christians by living a particular way. We're not saved from the wrath of God by living a particular way. We become Christians, we're saved by God, by his work, it's his gift to us. Now we live a particular way because of that gift. We live a particular way because we belong to him. We live a particular way because we're Christians. But we're saved and become Christians by his work in us. Uh, the wonderful expression in Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace... You have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that is our works, so that no one may boast. We come through 
by grace, which means it's a gift of God. It's his gift to us. We don't deserve it. In fact, we deserve the opposite. But he, it's his grace to us. And we receive it by faith. That is faith in him. We, we stop trusting ourselves. We stop trusting our own righteousness to, be, to, to earn it. We, we, we stop uh, trusting our own sufficiency and all of that. But now we trust, we rely upon Christ and Christ alone. His death and his life. Um, his death wherein he takes the penalty for our sin, pays it, he will, um, exhausts all of God's wrath because he receives the wrath of God, which is God's righteous judgment upon our sin. He receives it for us. And then uh, we are saved also by his life because he obeyed perfectly. In fact, this um, profession of faith from uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, how are you made right with God? Um, it's by his grace, sheer grace, as they put it back in that century, that God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. And these, these, these expressions are just boggling to the mind and to the heart. As if I had never sinned, nor been a sinner. As if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. That's how God receives us in him, in Christ, to think about that. All I need do is accept, it's above my spiritual pay grade to correct the Heidelberg Catechism. I would put receive, but that's a technical argument. I'll submit. All I needed to do is accept this gift of God with a believing heart, you see. I mean, you think about it. And when it says to, all I need to do, that isn't a meritorious work. That isn't something that God says, well, I'm, 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 going, to, uh, I'm going to reward you for that work of believing. <laughs> believing means I'm abandoning something. That I'm, I'm abandoning trust in myself. And I'm embracing wholeheartedly Christ. This isn't anything I do. It's something he's done. You see. And so, uh, we keep that in mind. And so we come to this section, which began in chapter 4. We come to this section of Ephesians. We have to remember that Paul, the first three chapters, laid out how it is that we, we become Christians, if you will. It's the work of God. It's his grace. It's his gift to us. Christ has done the work, you see. We simply receive it. By faith, we're recipients. And we don't boast in ourselves. That's the proof. It's his grace. We receive it by, by faith. But we mustn't ever forget as well that, that this faith, you see, is evidence that something's happened in us. Jesus used the expression, we're born again. We're born from above. There's something different about us. Something has changed in us. Uh, some weeks ago, we read through, and if you have opportunity this week, it's just a good brush up to read again through uh, Romans chapter 6. And the apostle there tells us that when Christ died, we died. And when Christ rose from the dead, we rose. Now, what does he mean by that? He means that united to Christ, when he died to sin, we died. So that we died to its penalty, 
and its power over us. We're no longer enslaved by us. We're no longer under its penalty. When we died, the penalty for sin was paid. When we died, the enslavement to sin was broken, you see. Because we died when Christ died. And when he rose, we rose, which means to this newness of life. That's why Paul could say here in Ephesians chapter 4, you know that great expression that in this new self, we're being created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's That's who we are now, this new self. And God is creating us in his own likeness. Now you remember back in Genesis we read that, we'll read it again, that this morning sometime that, that we've been created in the image of God, in his likeness, to reflect him. And, and, and that was broken, if you will, because of sin. And now because of Jesus, you see, uh, he's restoring us so that we can now live as those who are in his likeness and true righteousness and holiness. So, so Paul's now laying out, what's that look like? How do, how, do, how do we live now in, in this, this way? And, and he says, well, this same kind of pattern that we came into this in our conversion, we put off the old and put on the new. And now he's saying, now live that out. So anything that's associated with the old self, put it off, put it away. And everything that's associated now with one who is being created in the likeness of God in true righteousness, put that on, you see. And, and, and he, then we should ask the question, well, what, it, what exactly should we be putting off or what exactly should we be putting on? We shouldn't trust our own devices here. We should trust the word of God to speak to us, to teach us what we need to put off and put on. Because if left our own devices, devices we'll get it wrong, right? We'll, we'll put off the wrong stuff and put on the, we'll, we'll put off the, the stuff we, we should, how do I say this? We won't put on the right stuff. There you go. That's what I want to say. And so here it is. And so he begins to outline it for us. Now it's significant for us to know and remember that, that, that this, the promise in all of this is a tremendous transformation of our lives. That those who would lie now become people who live in the truth and tell the truth. Those who are angry with sin no longer are angry with sin. Those who, who steal no longer steal but work. So they can give. Uh, those whose, whose words were corrupting of others now speak words that give grace. Those who are bitter and angry and so forth now are those who are, who are actually tender-hearted, who are compassionate, who are kind, who forgive as they've been forgiven. And, and so this great transformation. And that's what we should be seeing in our lives, expecting in our lives. We do it perfectly no. We know a day will come when, when we will experience the perfection of this. But at this moment in time, we realize that we're in this time of, of, of how we understand it, sanctification. Uh, we've been, if we want to use some theological terms, justified, that is, accepted by God because of Christ and declared righteous because of Christ's righteousness. And we know a day will come and we'll see that in perfection as Jesus returns. But now we're going through this process of sanctification, of becoming increasingly, we trust, obedient, becoming increasingly, we trust, uh, holy before God. And he's working that now in us, you see. And he needs to because as we, when we came to faith, we came with all kinds of baggage and memories and thought processes that were wrong and habits of life. And now as his spirit works in us, we're to live all of that out, we see. 
And then remember that, that these commandments that were given aren't to restrict us, but really to free us. There's a wonderful expression that Paul uses when he writes to Timothy in First Timothy. And he says, now, Timothy, do all this stuff. Why? So that you can know the life that is truly life. <laughs> Real life. This is what it really means to be a human being. This is what it really means to be one who was created in the image of God. You haven't known that when you weren't a believer in Jesus. But now you can know it. You can know the life that's really life. This is the life that's really life. It doesn't restrict, but it frees us to live a real life. And so again, as I mentioned, Paul continues the same kind of pattern. Take off, if you will, and... uh, and, and put on. Um, we know that pattern. And then the reason, the reason why. Now notice what he's telling us to put off, what he's telling us to put on, and the reason why, just by way of outline. Notice verse 3. Here's what we're to put off. Sexual immorality, all impurity, covetousness. As he puts it, shouldn't even be named among us as his proper among the saints that is it's proper that these things aren't named among us and then he says that we're also to put off uh, filthiness foolish talk crude joking uh, because those are all out of place in the life uh, in the life of a believer so to put all of that on then notice what he tells us is to replace that and this this surprises me every time i read it i'm not quite expecting this we're to put on thanksgiving not Thanksgiving dinner, but you know, to be thankful. That's, 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 that's what we're to put on. He says, if you're thankful. Now, you see, when we were, when we were reading about putting off lying and put on truth, that, I got that, you know? Put off uh, stealing and work so you can give. I got that. Put off crude talk and put on words that give grace. I got that. Put off bitterness and put on kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness. I, now he says, the new affection to take away the improper affection of sexual immorality and so forth is to be thankful, to put on thanksgiving. And so why? Why is it necessary to do all that? Well, he says the, the uh, implications for not doing it are grave. Verse 5, he says, So you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetousness, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, don't be partners with them. And so as we read through that, we get a very clear picture of what we're to put off, sexual immorality and everything that goes with it. And what do we put on? Thankful hearts. And why? Because if we don't, then we have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. And the wrath of God will be upon us. Okay, that's the simple, easy, we see it as the point. Now, before we get into unpacking this, let me say this, first of all. This is always a difficult passage to preach. And it's a difficult passage to preach, not because it's not clear, but for a number of other reasons. Number one, I realize that in our setting that... The age span is from young to old. And so if I were at a men's retreat, I would be speaking in a particular way about this passage, right? Uh, If I were at a women's retreat, I wouldn't be speaking about this passage because I wouldn't be there. 
Though I once, I had the wonderful opportunity a number of years ago to speak at our national women's conference for the EPC. It was really wonderfully strange. Uh, being the only man in a room full of a thousand women. But, um, but I wouldn't be there. But, but, but you, so I'm aware of all of that. So I'll be as cautious and careful as I can be in, in that. The second thing is that sins of the flesh, as we might call them, or sexual sins, can bring up in a person, can bring up in us, uh, deep and disturbing, maybe even shameful, guilty thoughts. And I'm aware of that as well. Some have been deeply hurt by others in this whole realm of sexual sin. Some have hurt others and been hurt by their own decisions in this. And for reasons I think are somewhat understandable to us, these can be difficult to deal with. And when they're brought up, even if they've already been dealt with in a biblical way, you know, they've been dealt with in a right way and all of that, still we can retain some of the regret, some of the hurt, some of the sadness uh, and all of that. And, and, and also, clearly, we know that in the context of sin in general and this kind of sin in particular, that many of us, if not all of us, struggle in one way or another with sexual sin. And so we realize that... Um, Again, a passage like this can, can, bring, uh, can bring up feelings of guilt and, and shame and, 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 and so forth. And so let me just say a couple of things about that. Number one is that if you're a person uh, who has been hurt or has struggled and indeed are struggling and even perhaps even failing, that if you're a believer in Jesus... And if it's your heart's desire to follow him and please him. And if you have confessed your sin and if you have repented, that is, that you desire to live a different way, that your mind is refocused, it's changed. You realize that this is sin and you desire not to be a part of it and so forth. And you desire to follow him. And then please know that God forgives. And God restores and this passage doesn't, isn't here to heap more guilt upon you. But this passage is here to help you, to guide you, to give you instructions, to remind you, to encourage you, to give you hope, and the very hope of God's help in your life, the very hope of God's best for you, the very hope of eternal life. So, so please know that. But then, you see, if you... That isn't true of you if you're struggling with all this sexual sin and it is no longer really that much of a struggle that you've just simply given into it. That you say, no, this is simply my life. This is the way I will live my life in the midst of this sexual sin. If that's true for you, then be warned, right? Be warned by this passage. So, how do we understand it? Well, why does Paul bring this up in the first place, this whole notion about sexual sin? Well, he does because it's real, because it exists in the lives of people. It exists in cultures of people, uh, sexual sin. And in Ephesus, it was rampant in the sense that there was a big temple to the goddess Diana. 
And she was a fertility goddess. And, and so was not only every kind of sex, sexual immorality in existence in Ephesus, as it had always been throughout the history of, of the world, but, but there it was even religious, if you will. Then it was accepted in the context of temple worship, that one could engage a temple prostitute and worship uh, in that way. And so you can only imagine in a culture like that, and we can imagine it because we know the culture in which we live, that when men and women would come to faith in Jesus, that they would have all kinds of wrong thinking, all kinds of wrong experiences, sinful experiences in this area of sexuality and sexual intimacy. And so, so as they come into the faith, if you will, there needs to be instruction and exhortation and, 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 and thinking, if you will, and change of behavior for those who are followers of Christ. If they're going to know the joy of following Christ. And so it's a very real thing. Just like these other sins that Paul has laying out. This isn't for them. It's for us, really. It's for us, even in the context of church life. And, and so we know that, too. Uh, I'm not going to give you all the statistics. You know them about the culture in which we live. I'm not going to talk to you about all the sexual sins that exist in, the, in our world today, in our culture today. We, we understand that. We, we, know, we know all of that. And so Paul then lays it out for us. He says, uh, but sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you. What's he mean by that? Well, this first word, this first expression, sexual immorality, is the translation of a Greek word. It's the Greek word porneia. It's where we get our word pornography. Um, Whatever we mean by pornography, that's our word. Their word porneia meant that uh, all sexual intimacy, sexual intercourse, outside of a marriage relationship between a man and a woman, uh, was was sin, was impure, was immoral. That's what they meant by it. You know, the days which we live, sexuality is seen by some as not even a moral category. It just simply is the way people live their lives. And we shouldn't judge one way or another, moral or immoral, regardless of how they live. Well, the Bible, of course, isn't that way at all. And so here we have sexual immorality. Paul is saying that any sexual intimacy intercourse between, or I'm sorry, outside of this marriage relationship between a man and a woman um, is immoral, impure, if you will. That's what he's saying. So that obviously says that adultery is sin, it's immoral. That is, if a man has relations with a woman who is not his wife, that's sexual immorality. If a woman has sexual intimacy, sexually intimate with a man who is not her husband, that's sexual immorality, right? Uh, What we would call premarital sex, if you will, or outside of marriage, sexual intimacy would be sexually immoral. Uh, homosexuality, uh, sex, same-sex relations would be considered to be sexually immoral and, and all the rest. Anything, any sexual intimacy that isn't between a man and a woman who are married to each other uh, is sexual immorality. It's very clear, right? 
And then he says, all impurity. And so you say, well, what else, what else could you say that you haven't already said in that expression? Well, there's all kind of other sexual uncleanness, whether lust. You know, Jesus was, was trying to get at the very heart of the matter when he says, oh, you may not have committed adultery. And so you can perhaps check off that particular commandment because you haven't been sexually uh, um, intimate with someone who isn't your spouse but, 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 but lust, did you, did you desire it? Did you, did you mentally have relations with that person? Jesus goes to the very heart of the matter. Well, then covetousness. Coveting is when you desire something that isn't yours, to have it belongs to someone else and you want it rather than they to have it and so this coveting could be a very broad category but in this context it's most likely to be in the category of the 10th commandment when when the god's reports to the people uh, that they're not to covet their neighbor's wife if you will that is you're not to desire your neighbor's spouse for your own self gratification if you will your own sexual to meet your own sexual uh, desires that's this this sense. And of course, all through the scripture, but especially in the New Testament, we, we find um, sexual immorality being uh, discussed. Uh, we see it uh, in Matthew in chapter 15, where Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders and he's saying, you know, you're all concerned about what you take in your mouth, what you take into your stomach, and you think that's going to make you unclean in some way or another. He says, but it isn't that at all. It's what comes out of you that defiles you. Verse 18 of Matthew 15, uh, Jesus says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defiles a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anybody. It may make you sick, you may get a cold, but it doesn't defile you in a spiritual way if you don't wash your hands. Just wanted to say that for all the moms out there. Uh, so your kids won't say, but mom. Then, uh, or even your husbands. Acts chapter 15 uh, Verse 20, as the church comes together and, 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 and they're deciding, what are we going to teach? And, and there's a big debate about how much of the Old Testament law, if you will, if any, does anyone need to come under? And, of course, the big question there is circumcision. But um, so at the end of the day, as the apostles are being sent out with the gospel, um, the uh, word... Um, that James lays out for everyone is verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from that which has been strangled uh, and from blood. Um, for from ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read in every Sabbath in the synagogue. So sexual immorality, that was true uh, in the Old Testament and now even in the New to be, to be dealt with by us. Then 1 Corinthians in chapter 6, a very similar kind of, kind of passage that we have here in, uh, in verse 9. The apostle says, um, well, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. 
neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We'll talk about this in a minute, but, but when Paul writes these things, he isn't saying, well, if you've committed this sin once or even after you become a Christian, uh, d- d- does that exclude you then from the kingdom? He says, no, but if these things define you, if this is who you are, if this is who you are at your very heart, you see, then you're not a follower of Christ. You're not a believer in Christ. So that's what excludes you. And then in chapter, same chapter, verse 19, he says, uh, verse 18, he says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin is a, a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immorality, but, but the sexual immoral person commits sin against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. And then in Colossians 3, uh, uh, again, very similar to what, he writes uh, to the church uh, in Ephesus, Colossians 3 and verse 5. We have it. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Same expressions that, um, that we have in, in Ephesians 5. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming, and these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. And so, similar there. Then in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4, uh, verse 3, he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you grow in holiness. That's the will of God for you, your sanctification. And then he begins to talk about what that means. He says, That you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles, who do not know God, that no one transgresses, trans, transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but, but holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this regards not man but God and gives his, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. You see, as those who've been sealed with the Holy Spirit were to live in a particular way and were not to be sexually immoral... Because he says when we do that, it wrongs our neighbor, it wrongs our brother, it wrongs our sister. Clearly, it wrongs the one with whom we engage in such behavior. But it wrongs the whole community as well when this happens in the midst of the community. Because it casts aspersions upon Christ and upon the witness of Christ as well. And so there we have that one as well. And then we could say even in Hebrews in chapter 13... And verse 4 is just a very concise statement. Let the marriage bed, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And so, so all of that, we could, we could go on and on, and we could run this through the scripture in various ways, but I think we all get it, uh, what Paul means here, and how we are to understand this. Now the question is, very quickly, Why? Why is this wrong? Why is this wrong? Why, why, what's so wrong with it? You know, the argument of our culture is, what's really so wrong with this? How does it really hurt me or hurt anyone? 
at all. And, and we have to go back to understanding how we were created and why we, we were created. You remember in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So when he creates human beings, as he refers to as man here, we recognize that he creates not just people, but he creates men and women, male and female. And so there's something about that distinction that's important uh, in, in imaging who God is. Verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and all of that. And so he realizes that there's this, this function that male and female human beings have been made to be sexual beings, to be able to have children together. And God says, this is very good. All of this is good. So, so human sexuality and, 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 and men and women uh, being united together um, and being sexually intimate is a good thing. But only in this context that he puts in chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and weren't ashamed. In other words, sexuality, um, sexual intimacy is a good thing. But it's only good in the context of this faithful union between a man and a woman. One person put it like this. He said, One flesh is more than just a physical union. It is an exclusive, permanent, legal, economic, uh, personal, emotional, psychological, and spiritual union that is, in all ways, this man and this woman are inseparably united. He says, it's exclusive, that is, it's monogamous. I don't share this with anybody else. Just the two of us. This is exclusive for us. It's permanent until life's end. It's legal, and that I think we better say public, that is, everybody knows this about us. That it isn't just something that we do in secret. Everybody knows this about us. Everybody knows that we're together, that we're joined together. That's the reason for a public demonstration, a wedding ceremony, if you will, or some kind of acknowledgement publicly that this couple is now united together. It's economic, that is, they work to provide uh, for the material needs of the other. It's personal, right? It's two persons. It's emotional. We're tied together. We share an emotional attachment life to each other. We have feelings for each other that we don't have for anybody else. We share thoughts and feelings and relationship that we don't share with anybody else. We know each other in ways that nobody else really knows us and nobody else could know, know us because it's a psychological union. It's a spiritual union. We share together um, uh, we share together this life with God. One of the things I always say in a wedding is that God has instituted marriage, that he's instructed uh, husbands and wives as to how they're to live. They're to cherish their mutual esteem. They're to bear each other's burdens. They're to comfort one another in all of life's difficulties. They were to provide, provide for the material needs of the other. They're to pray for each other. They are to live together as heirs of the grace of life. There's something about this 
that joins a husband and a wife together. And the proper sphere then of this sexual intimacy, because it's not only part of that intimacy, but, but it, it rather seals in so many ways that intimacy, is this sexual union with each other. So much so that when Paul's writing to the church in Corinth about sexual sin, he, he writes this. He's saying, verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I won't be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. You see, when a man and a woman are sexually intimate, they become one flesh. He was not saying here that if you become one flesh with a prostitute, then you're married to her or to him. He's not saying that. He's, he's saying, that's, that's all wrong. That shouldn't be taking place at all. He says, for it's written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Because you see, when you're married and you're sexually intimate with another, then how can that be? You're one flesh here. How can you be one flesh there? That ought not be. Not only that, since we're united to Christ and we're one flesh with him and we're joined with our spouse, how can we take Christ into that immoral relationship? He says, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? So this sexual intimacy in ways we can only wonder about unite us, unites us together, husband and wife. Now we'll get more into this relationship of husband and wife in chapter 5. At the end of chapter 5, we talk about the relationship between Christ and his church. But we must also realize that one of the reasons that, that there is this marriage, that we, are, that we have marriage and it's to be pure and it's to be monogamous and it's to be faithful to each other. It's because we're the bride of Christ and our marriages reflect that, you see. And so we're to be faithful to our spouses as Christ is faithful to us, you see, as his bride. And to break that, to be unfaithful, is to give the impression that Christ could be unfaithful to us. He said, no, no, no. He loves us. He knows us. And that's to be reflected in this relationship that we call marriage. So what's the problem? Well, the problem, of course, is sin. Uh, all of that would, would have been wonderfully pure had sin not entered uh, the race, that, that Adam would have only desired Eve and Eve only Adam. And, and as they had children together, their children would grow up in such a way and this, this perfection, you see, as they would populate the earth, that, uh, that, 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 that their lives would be 
perfectly free of any lust or any sin. And they would have in their mind, the only person that I can sexually desire is the one who would be my spouse. And so, however, they would be joined together to, in order to meet and all of that. But, 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 but their lives would be perfectly pure and they would have desired only this one and, and, and all would be well. But sin entered the game, you see. Sin entered the world and our lives and it, it broke all of that. And, and so what happens... Every human being is born with perverse sexual inclinations. Every human being. Whether you have a sense that it's, it's that you're inclined towards someone of the opposite sex or the same sex, or whether you think your gender fits you or any of that, we're, we're all sin in this area. And we all need to repent of it and turn, if you will, and turn to God. None of us can trust our natural inclinations. But that's true all the time. Don't you know that some people have a natural propensity to lie? And they, when they lie, they can't say, well, you know, it's just how I was brought up. Or that's just how my mind works. And you go, no, 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 you need to repent of that and tell the truth. Some people seem to have more of a natural propensity to steal. And so you say, no, no, no. You need to repent of that. And stop stealing and work, you see. Uh, some people just don't like to work. And you say, sorry. Right? You got to work. That's all. Well, we're human beings. That's what it means to be created in the image of God. So you need to repent of that and get to work, you see. Uh, and so that you can be generous. So that you can be give. Some people don't like to give. Some people aren't generous people. And you say, no, no, that's what it means to be created in the image of God as, as one who gives. For some, bitterness comes very easy and it's very hard not to be bitter. And you say, no, no, no. So you need to put that off and be tenderhearted and be kind and all of that. For some people, anger comes very simple and very direct. And you have to say, no, no, wait a minute. Just because it feels, just because it feels natural to you doesn't mean that it's it's right you see somebody punches you in the nose and they say sorry it just felt like i just you know it's who i am you know you say no no you shouldn't do that well, the same thing with our sexuality same thing with our sexuality and and and, and the, the consequences of not falling after god are, are are dire here because he says you won't become uh, uh those who inherit uh the kingdom of god and christ john stott gives us this word of caution when we read that. He says, but we must be cautious, however, in our application of this severe statement. It shouldn't be understood as teaching that a single immoral thought or word or deed is enough to disqualify us from heaven. Otherwise, which of us would ever qualify for admission? No. For those who fall into such sins through weakness, but afterwards repent in shame and humility, there's forgiveness. The immoral or impure person envisioned here is one who has given himself up without shame or a penitence to this way of life, one who is covetous, that is, in a sense, already defined, uh, namely sexually greedy, that is, an idolater. Such people whose lust has become an idolatrous obsession will have no share in the kingdom of God or Christ. The wrath of God will be upon them. You see, this, is, this becomes idolatry. And idolatry means that someone or something is in the place of God. So think about this with me. Who is God? What, what does God do? How do we recognize God in our lives? If you're trying to find your idols, or if you're trying to find who God is, how, how do you do that? Well, let me give you kind of a, a bit of a paradigm. Number one is, 
When you ask the question, who am I? Who gives the answer? When you ask the question, how am I to live? Who gives the answer? You see, whoever, whatever, gives the answer is God to you. Because you see, we go to God and we say, who am I? Please define my life. Tell me who I am in every area of life. And then we go to God and we say, who or how am I to live? And he directs our lives. Now, if we're an idolater, then when we say, who am I? Someone, something other than God defines my life. In this area of sexuality, when we say, who am I, and we go to the scripture, God says, you're created in my image. You're a man or a woman. You're created in my image. Now, if we go to our own bodies and we get to get the answer to that, and our body says something different than that, and we follow that, then we're an idolater. You see, we're following someone else. Somebody other than God is telling us who we are. Who we are. If I follow my own passions, what's on the inside, uh, uh, then that's God to me. I'm an idolater. And if I say, how shall I live? And the scripture tells me, here's how you should live in this area of sexuality as a man or a woman. That you should not be sexually immoral, but you should be sexually pure, which means that you'll be sexually intimate with one who is only your spouse your husband, or your wife. And you'll be pure in that. That's how you're to live your life. If that directs you, then God is God to you. But if you say, well, well that's not how I feel. That's not, that's not what I think. That's not how I feel like my passions are moving me. If you follow your own passions, then you're an idolater. And the passions of your life, you see, are God to you. And then finally, where do you find your joy? in the way that God, through the scripture, defines and directs us, or are my own passions, if you find it through how God defines and directs, then he's your God. If you find your joy, your delights, in, how you, in your own passions, you're an idolater, and your own passions become your God. That's why you see there's no place, no inheritance for idolaters, because they don't belong to God. They're following their own way, not his way. You see, they're trusting their own way, not, not God's way. That's why the wrath of God will come, because they're still in their sin, because they've not repented, because they've not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ to follow him. That's why the antidote to all of, the antidote to all of this is thankfulness. I, I smile when I say that, because I say, you know, well, don't commit adultery, just be thankful. Well, thankful for what? <laughs> thankful the way that God has defined you. Thankful for the way that he directs you. Thankful to such a degree that you delight in the way he's defined you and directs you. Even if that feels contrary, you see. Sometimes my sin in various areas seems so natural. <laughs> and it's so wrong. That I can't trust my own inclinations. I have to say, okay, God, you're the one who defines me. You're the one that directs me. And he says, be thankful. You know, when you get a present 
and you're thankful for it, what's it mean? It means, most likely, I couldn't have got this for myself. It's a gift. Wow, I couldn't have maybe got this for myself. But even if I could have, this is exactly what I want. This is perfect for me. This is really good. And uh, the more perfect it is for you, the better it is for you, the more thankful you are, you are. And so God says, now receive my word and my instruction, the way I define you and direct you. Receive that, you see, as my gift to you. And when you're thankful for it, you go, yes, this is exactly right. This is exactly how, who I should be. This is exactly how I'm to live. This will be the very joy of my life. Now you may have to say that by faith, for it may go against everything that you're feeling at the moment. And not only that, if you're thankful for it, it will lead you to confession and repentance. You can't be with another man or woman who isn't your spouse and stop and say, Lord, thank you for giving this person to me. You can't do that. Because you know that that God didn't give that person to you in that way. In fact, he's talked exactly the opposite of it. You can't thank him for that. And when you can't thank him for that, and you know that you're in the midst of sin, and it should cause you then to confess and repent and receive his forgiveness, you see. So, put away sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness. Don't even joke about it. And be thankful. Let's pray, Father. Pray for us. You'd grant us the grace to rest in your wonderful provision. Give us the strength to live it in a culture probably like the Apostles' culture in Ephesus where it literally makes no sense to anyone outside of those who have been born of the Spirit of God. May we be not judgmental, but may we live as you've called us to live. Not proud, but humble, because we know our own sin. But help us to live in a way, God, that reveals that the way you define human beings and how we're to live is the only way to true joy. So may we be thankful. And this I pray in Jesus' name.